Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkut. Today's guest is Buzz Anderson, co-founder of Brooklyn Computer Club and a veteran software engineer who has worked for Apple, Square, and Tumblr. Today's show is sponsored by 23andMe. Learn more about your genetics with a personalized DNA analysis. Welcome back to BitSplitting. I am happy to welcome this time around my friend Buzz Anderson. Buzz is a longtime Mac and iOS developer who has spent time at Apple. He has run his own company, Sci-Fi Hi-Fi. He uh, was an engineer at Square, at Tumblr, and is now back into the indie consulting world working with a partner uh, on his new company, the Brooklyn Computer Club. Welcome to BitSplitting, Buzz. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here, Buzz, and I was just thinking about this uh, before we started recording a sort of a sort of this is sort of a funny um, funny coming around full circle for me and you in a way because I don't know if you remember this. I wrote uh, kind of a sassy I'm, I'm ashamed of it in retrospect <laughs> this this was a uh, an old blog post I wrote in November 2005. And it's called Apple Employee Silenced by Self. <laughs> and I hadn't met you yet. You were somebody who I obviously admired because I was reading your blog and trying to keep up with everything you were doing. Um, and at the time, I was also a big fan of the Coco Radio podcast by oh, Blake Burris. Right. Yeah. And um, the way it went down, I think, was you were invited to be interviewed by Blake on that podcast yep. and then things got touchy with, <laughs> um, with, with the way you felt about doing that in the context of working for Apple, Yeah, which is not uncommon um, for people to feel that way. Right. But I kind of got, in, in retrospect, I kind of <clears throat> got up on my high horse a little bit and said, there's no good reason for Buzz to refuse to do this. And this is why. And of course it's all, um, it was all a little bit blind to the bottom line that it's actually your career and your your problem to be <laughs> yeah it's your, your your prerogative to be worried about that stuff but i think it's kind of interesting now uh almost eight years later yeah my i, I am vindicated by um actually having you on my show to be oh yeah that's true interviewed i i forgot that our our relationship started over a, a podcasting issue it's kind of funny that podcasting is is that old now too <laughs> isn't it amazing <laughs> yeah i mean yeah in 2005 i was listening to and enjoying podcasts yeah. and Sometimes, boy, more and more I look at these dates and they seem really, really uh, long ago. I mean, yeah, looking back on that on that time, yeah, you were obviously working at Apple at the time. And boy, a lot has changed since then. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that, that specific inc incident was, um, I think I've, I've since explained it to you, but uh, I actually, I think one thing you probably weren't aware of at the time was that it was actually... <laughs> my my withdrawal from the podcast was actually motivated by a specific internal communication um <laughs> not not uh just me censoring myself it actually was like there was a a manager at apple right. who found out that i was going to be on this podcast and and sent me an email so it's yeah. uh <clears throat> it's uh like I, I i always like to tell people i had a one of my directors at apple once uh 
took me aside when I was throwing my WWDC party and told me, uh, let me tell you something about Apple Buzz. At, uh, at Apple, it's push, not pull. <laughs> so, oh, boy. Yeah. yeah, so there was a very, like, I mean, obviously everyone now knows that Apple has that, um, that sort of uh, bent a little bit, but um, I think back then it was maybe, like, I know you had worked at Apple, but it was possibly, like, pre, I think it was pre-Steve Jobs comeback, right? Um, yeah, I worked there before Steve Jobs, but then, but then he did come back very shortly after I started working there. Yeah. Okay. So, well, so you experienced some of that, but there's, yeah. de- there's a definite, I, I'd be really curious to know if that's sort of lessened a little bit, uh, in, in recent years, but, uh, yeah, back then it was pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. It seems like maybe it's, um, I, I think it's always been sort of varying depending on your management chain but i i think uh you just there many people you're not the only one who ended up in one of these man, management change chains that was and possibly still is very uptight about that kind of thing yeah um and so i'm just glad in a, in in that respect i'm glad you're not working at apple anymore yeah um <laughs> and you have a lot of freedoms now to uh yeah it's nice to be able to to blog that was sort of i was in a weird position at apple because um i I was one of the few at the time employees who had a um, like a blog that uh, that wasn't just sort of like a, a personal blog that was actually kind of read by by people in the community. So that was a little unusual <clears throat> for an employee to have any kind of like social media profile. Um, and uh, I think also it was a little bit strange because um, I was always kind of skating on on thin ice a little bit there with Apple because I also had like my shareware <laughs> that I did. Right. Um, I had uh, Podworks at the time and Cocolicious, which were uh, I, a lot of people today when I tell them about that, they're amazed I was able to get away. <laughs> I think I, I think even a lot of my my coworkers at the time were amazed I was <laughs> able to get away with with having right. uh, the world's most pop popular uh, iPod song copying application that right. I was maintaining while while I was do do steal music right <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um, so anyway but yeah no I'm I'm happier to uh, to be able to express myself more freely now yeah well um, you've had an interesting uh, professional career coming you know coming from Apple and as I said going through Square Tumblr now working uh, with the partner uh, Philip. Bowden, right? Yeah. Uh, Bowden. Bowden. Uh, Bowden. And um, I want to quickly jump away from that, mm-hmm. as I like to do, and kind of <laughs> and, and go back to um, far far before any time when joining Apple was even on your radar. Possibly, if possible, before programming a computer was on your radar. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I believe you grew up in the Denver, Colorado area. Yeah, that's right. Well, I want to know something about about uh, your childhood, which is, um, uh, I think I don't think it's a secret that Buzz is not like your given name. Oh, right. Yeah. No, that's uh, well. Actually, you'd be surprised how many people uh, don't realize that Buzz is not my my given name. Um, I actually have problems a lot where people write me checks and things like that that I I can't cash because because oh, <laughs> they right? put Buzz. On. Yeah, it happens happens way more than you would imagine. Yeah, it's actually Lawrence. Lawrence is my my given name. Now you can't cash a check if somebody 
writes it to Buzz? Or is I, that- I could probably like get it on my bank account somehow as a, but yeah, I mean, my legal name, <laughs> the, na- the name on my bank account is, is Lawrence Anderson. So yeah, it happens a lot that, um, you know, like when I've worked for, uh, for startups and things like that, like cashing expense checks, everyone just knows me, uh, as buzz. <laughs> so like they'll, right. uh, they would make, ex- you know, expense report checks or things like that out to me as, uh, as buzz. <laughs> so I guess that explains why all of my, uh, all my checks to L dog Anderson have never <laughs> been, have never been ch- uh, cashed. Banks are sticklers about that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> I know how to. If I ever owe you money, Buzz, I know how to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I know how to. I know how to stall you if you want to buy yourself uh, some time. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so is is uh, is Buzz a name that you started? Did your family started calling you when you were a kid, or did it come later in your life? Yeah, no, it actually uh, goes all the way back to when I was a baby. I um, my dad's name. Well, a couple of things. This is what I always tell people. My dad's name uh, is Lawrence as well. Uh, Lawrence is kind of like. I think it's sort of, I mean, no offense to the Lawrences out there. I am one after all. Um, but it's its kind of a problematic name. It's very formal um, and almost sort of waspy. <laughs> um, but the sort of informal version of it, uh, Larry is not, I've never really sort of self-identified as a Larry. <laughs> um, no offense to the Larrys out there. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, yeah, and I don't know, as for a kid, my again, my dad's name is Lawrence. And for a kid, Lawrence is kind of a, a formal sound name um, and I had a little uh, stuffed bee toy as a baby that my uh, and and yeah based on that um, I think my parents started sort of jokingly calling me buzz and then it kind of stuck and then I think you know like a lot of people when you when you enter those those awkward teenage years you sort of uh, uh, try to to get rid of those little you know family uh, pet names or whatever which I sort of did I tried going by uh, Lawrence for a while but it just didn't really stick it's uh, so basically by the time I really started my career I was like yeah I think I think buzz it is <laughs> yeah well that's I like it you know it's what I've always known you as and I kind of I see where you're coming from with a name like Lawrence has a sort of um uh old worldness to it that's yeah. uh, it's it, it, it's like Rutherford or something and right. not quite not quite but it, it's uh it's not as adaptable to um i guess casualness as yeah a, a name like buzz um so buzz uh growing up in Colorado Denver area in the 1970s uh can you remember what your first exposure to or your first experience with a personal computer was? Yeah. Well, actually, oh yeah, I have, this is, this is a rich vein of stuff. I can talk about this for a long time. Um, <laughs> the, um, yeah, I think, well, a couple of things. My dad was always, um, very into personal computers. Um, and <clears throat> he brought home a, uh, a Commodore VIC 20, which I believe was <laughs> my first, uh, personal computer, which is, I, I believe it had 16 K of Ram, which is, sort of unbelievable. Uh, no, uh, you know, no persistent storage of any kind. Um, pretty, pretty underpowered computer, but it had some cartridge games you could play. It had basic. Um, and, uh, yeah, I did learn a little bit. Um, my dad and I learned a little bit of, uh, basic programming together, just your, your standard, uh, 10 print hello 20 go to 10 kind of stuff. Um, (laughs) and, uh, then I also, um, my mom subscribed me, uh, actually, Probably nobody really remembers this, but 
if if you were a kid who was into computers at this very specific time, the uh, children's television workshop people, the Sesame Street people, actually uh, did a really cool magazine for a while called Inter. Uh, that was sort of a computer magazine that was aimed at kids. Um, and based on that, I sort of really expanded my knowledge. They had kind of like insane uh, programs. You could like <laughs> – this This just boggles the mind today, but they had like like really long program listings. You could like type into your computer and stuff, uh, which was – especially masochistic for me because again i had no disk drive so right. <laughs> so you had to do it had to type it in afresh every time you turn the computer yeah, on yeah so if you like turn the computer off like uh it, you would uh you'd lose this whole program <laughs> it was a little insane i think it's yeah. it, it people i think who who grow up today would have a hard time understanding what this was like yeah so uh i was i was very into that um then we had a um several commodore 64s um and Eventually, I finally I did eventually get a disk drive, um, but <laughs> but then um, eventually I finally ended up uh, with an Amiga five hundred, um, which was I, I. It's funny I've noticed there are a lot of uh, people in sort of the Mac OS iOS community who who had Amigas at some point, um, but the Amiga was actually a very uh, interesting kind of ahead of its time computer. Um, it was actually the result of like Commodore, I believe, acquired the operating system. Yeah. It was actually being developed as like a next generation operating system, but it had all kinds of like <clears throat> really sophisticated multimedia capabilities for its time. Uh, it had really impressive graphics and sound. Um, it had kind of like a you know multi-threaded, multitasking OS, things like that. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a there's a great video of uh, Andy Warhol painting Debbie Harry <laughs> with an Amiga. Right. Um, but uh yeah so i had that but of course like what i really wanted the entire time uh was an apple of some sort and that really began with um i had a friend named tim who had an apple 2c which i loved uh I, partly cuz the the form factor and apple's ads at the time um really kind of like actually there was this one ad i think it's on my blog somewhere that apple had that was like um a kids bedroom with an Apple IIc in it, and that was like porn for me. I was like, I must have this computer. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I was kind of obsessed with that. Part of the reason I was obsessed with that, and this this gets at another thing that I think is sort of um, not well remembered today, but um, there was um, uh, the Learning Company, which actually, this is a funny story, I eventually met the founder of the Learn- Learning Company when I lived in California, but um, they had a couple... Uh, uh, interesting games. A lot of people probably remember Rocky's Boots, um, which was sort of a. It, this was kind of like the golden age of like edutainment software, because <laughs> um, there were a lot of apples in schools and stuff. And this was also back when they would actually try to teach kids about computers in school, as opposed to sort of like teach them how to use Microsoft Word or something. Um, like there, it's hard to believe, but there was actually a time when. In, in elementary school, they would try to teach you like logo programming or sort of the basics of how computers work. Um, I think that's something that's really kind of been lost today. But um, so in addition to things like logo, there were things like Rocky's Boots, which um, was sort of trying to teach kids about electronics. But the game that really obsessed me, um, there was this game called Robot Odyssey, um, which every once in a while you'll meet someone who remembers this game, but it's not very well known. Rocky's Boots was sort of the more famous one. But it's... Um, the whole point of Robot Odyssey is you're a human trapped in a robot city and you need to get out, but you, the way to get out is you have to go through these mazes that are sort of patrolled by malevolent robots. And the way you 
can get through the mazes was basically you have to get inside a friendly robot and essentially program it uh, to navigate the maze. And hmm. the, um, the robots, the friendly robots that you controlled would have like, a- as you progress through the game, you'd get more and more sophisticated ones. Um, some of them would have different kinds of sensors, like, um, like visual sensors or sensors where um, if they bumped into things, you could get some kind of input. Uh, and then you had sort of a toolkit of basically like logic gates, just like using the actual, you know, symbology of like and or nor things like that. And um, yeah, I was just like enthralled with this game. I mean, I think it really um, appealed to me because I I was a kid who liked to make things. I was a, a very creative, um, you know. I drew, I wrote stories, I drew comics, things like that. Um, and this game, I think, really powerfully in in a way that um, kind of just throwing someone in with programming um, right. might not. It just sort of powerfully showed me like, wow, this is amazing. I can actually make these robots that do things and stuff. Um, so yeah, that that really reinforced my kind of obsession with like the Apple IIc. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, unfortunately, I never really got one as a kid. The second thing that I always mention when I uh, sort of discuss my, my long-term love affair with Apple is um, I distinctly remember, um, and I, I've actually seen people uh, resurface old episodes of this show uh, recently on places like Tumblr, but um, there was a show called Computer Chronicles uh, oh, yeah. that I believe was on PBS, um, and I have a distinct memory of sitting around with my dad one afternoon at home watching this show, and they were demoing um, uh, a Mac, and this this was, I mean, this probably was like 1985. Um, they were demoing a Mac, which I'd never seen before, um, and part of the demo was they showed HyperCard, um, which also kind of blew my mind. Um, and again, I think it was a very similar um, sort of thing to like Robot Odyssey. It was like, wow, I, this is like a toolkit that I could use to like wire up my own um, applications. I could make I, it's like a construction kit. It's like Legos, which I also loved. Um, and um, yeah, so I think once I saw that, I, I was really kind of cemented on like, wow, I've got to get a Mac. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't until, uh, well, and then there was sort of like the, um, the sort of Windows, uh, Windows 95 dark period where like owning a Mac was like a weird countercultural thing to do. <laughs> so nobody did it. Um, and uh, anyway, finally, my first Mac was a uh, blue and white G3 tower. Yes. So, so I finally got one. Anyway, your love, yes. So that's pretty much the history. <laughs> that's the history of your uh, of your love affair with Apple, and your, uh, it's interesting to learn that you were introduced not to necessarily programming like a, a sophisticated computer programmer, but you had kind of similar to my childhood. You had this kind of like, uh, um, uh, so, so sort of like almost accidental exposure to programming with things like. Um, these games that build in programming concepts and then like you said the inter magazine uh it's funny and you know i think like uh, when i'm being especially disparaging of uh web programming i sometimes <laughs> uh, compare web programming to like you know following the same trajectory of native you know desktop device programming but like you know 15 years behind right um and as you, when you mentioned the not having a disk drive thing it sort of made me think like oh it's like offline storage. Or <laughs> right. y- y- you were programming without offline storage. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of a, kind of another one of those things because it's like you said, uh, 
people today couldn't imagine what it would be like to have to program with these constraints. And the funny thing is, on some levels, people do uh Oh yeah, I, in the context of web, I, I love a good. Uh, I, I mean, I, I try not to be too much that that guy who's sort of like, oh, you kids today don't know what programming was like back then when it was hard and you had to do assembly language or whatever. But um, you know, it, it's true. It really was like a, a very different time, and I guess it, it's sort of fascinating to me that. Um, like, yeah, like learning basic programming back then. I mean, basic was really an introductory language, but there were like a whole bunch of things that if you wanted to get into sort of the advanced stuff, it was like you had to learn to like peek and poke, like, you know, specific right. memory locations and things like that. I mean, you really had to think of the machine in terms of a machine. It wasn't as much of an abstraction as it is today. Right. Well, uh, Buzz, I know you are, I know that computers are one of your major, main hobbies and it's obviously your profession is centered around computers um one of the things i have always enjoyed about your blogging and about just hanging out with you is that you have a lot of other interests uh things that come to mind include uh you have an interest in uh photography you're interested in coffee you're interested (laughs) in cocktails yeah interested in lots of things that i would sort of classify as like um um classically designed things um <laughs> and i'm assuming that the cocktail interest probably didn't start uh, uh in uh, <laughs> in 1980 but uh, some of these other things probably have roots that go back to your childhood uh can what what, what are some of the other things that were capturing your attention um when you when you you know it sounds like you had such an early exposure to computers that it it may have been like a, a major consumer of your time and attention yeah but were there other what were, were things like photography on your radar back then actually what you what you're saying there sort of um reminds me of uh something i was going to make a point i was going to make as part of the previous sort of block of stuff um that sort of dovetails into this which is i i think um i've always observed i've worked with a lot of engineers of, of various types over my my lifetime and i guess i've found that um they're really they really tend to break down and i mean not to generalize too much but there are different gradations of this but i feel like generally things kind of break down in terms of like there are a lot of people who um are kind of like natural uh natural programmers who uh natural engineers who are people who just love solving problems have like a very abstract thought process and like com- <laughs> if programming hadn't been around they probably would have been like a monk somewhere or something like that where they could like uh think about calculus or something um then there's also i think uh another kind of programmer engineer which is people who sort of have always kind of like learned what they need to do uh to make the kinds of things that they want to make like they (laughs) they view it as sort of like the best path toward like a certain kind of creativity um and i think i'm i'm definitely kind of in that latter camp um and that's not to say that you know both can't be good engineers or both can't be kind of creative but i think the the fundamental impulse comes from from different places and i think for me um yeah i was i was i guess I, i was pretty lucky to grow up in what i would call a fairly um a, a home where creativity was encouraged, shall we say? <laughs> mm-hmm. Which I know what you're all thinking. Uh, my parents were hippies. No, um, <laughs> actually, um, not exactly. But uh, they, my parents were like very encouraging people. Of just like they were the kind of people who were like, "Oh, you're interested in that? That's great! Like 
why don't you dig more into that? Learn about that. Tell me about what you learned. Um, I think that was a big part of it that I, um, I had, I was sort of encouraged to have, uh, wide interests as a kid. Um, also, I think the other thing I've always been a big, um, I, well, as you can tell, I'm, I'm a big talker. I'm a big verbal person. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I, I was a, a pretty young reader. I was a pretty like voracious reader at a pretty young age. Um, which I think that sort of helps with kind of having like a natural sense of curiosity. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, um, eh, yeah, I don't know what else I, 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 as a kid, I, I wrote a lot of stories. Um, I drew a lot. I was into drawing. I drew comics um, where I sort of created uh, characters and stories. Um, actually, one time I won, a, I won my family a year's supply of ice cream <laughs> from a, a local <laughs> supermarket chain in Denver uh, with a comic I did. Um, yeah, so I, I, it wasn't really just like I, I was not that kind of kid who was like, I am immersed in like computer stuff that was sort of just one of the many things i was interested in through yeah that sort of just continued as i've gotten older i i also as far as like you mentioned like you know cocktails and cooking and stuff um i think one of the reasons i i'm so into that today um <laughs> i mean aside from obvious jokes about alcoholic programmers aside um i i think part of the reason i'm so into it is that it's kind of a, a very different thing than uh it's it's a more manual uh, process that you do with your hands as opposed to programming. Sometimes at the end of the day, like when I've been <laughs> immersed in a problem or something, I just want to like, you know, dice an onion or something. <laughs> and right. um, I, I find like, it's a very, it's a creative, it's a creative pursuit. Um, but it's not something where you have to be so actively engaged and hold so much state in your mind in the way uh, programming is. It's It's kind of a way to to turn off your brain and do something. It is a little bit like, you know, I, I sort of understand why, you know, monks, you know, do things like, you know, have, have gardens and, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, do cooking or like make beer or things like that. Cause they are, um, very meditative processes. And I, I think I, I kind of need that as a way to <laughs> just kind of get out of the, the programming brain for a while. Um, the other thing that I really like about uh, cooking that is um, uh, that does kind of dovetail uh, both cooking and and sort of like learning to make cocktails and stuff like that. Um, it it I think there's one thing about it that is is like engineering in that learning both. Um, I, I was actually reading so, uh, somebody linked to this great um, piece about, I can't remember, I think it was in the New York times about like learning to be a woman programmer. Um, and it was a woman talking about her experience, um, you know, kind of programming in a male dominated industry and all that. And one of the things she said in there that I think is really true is that part of programming is you have to have the patience to just keep making mistakes over and over <laughs> and learn a little bit each time but just be like really, really persistent. Um, and I think that's like becoming uh, a good cook or a good at, you know, making cocktails or things like that is very similar in that um, if you look at like every time you make something, if you look at it as like not turning out perfectly, then you'll never get anywhere. But you, you have to sort of look at every single um, perceived failure as, as progress because it's something that you learned. And I, I guess I sort of enjoy the kind of like long iterative process of like, uh, 
learning each time a little bit more like, oh, I need to dice these a little smaller next time or like I need to control the heat better, you know, things like that. So, Right. And one of the, um, one of the classic bits of wisdom about cooking uh, that also applies to cocktails as it happens is mm. you can eat or drink your mistakes. Yeah. That's- and that's always a kind of a nice, as long as it's not a terrible mistake, then you, you get something out of it. Yeah, um, definitely. So uh, you ended up, um, after growing up in Colorado, you ended up moving to California uh, to work at Apple. Then you ended up moving to New York, where you currently live. Uh-huh. Uh, but when you, at, at the beginning of your adult life, you actually stayed pretty close to home, uh, attending the University of Denver. Yes. And was that, um, was that uh, does that reflect that your sort of sense of adventure and willingness to travel afar was not yet <laughs> developed or was it just sort of a pragmatic, well, there's a school right, right here and I might as well go to it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I think a little bit of both. I think both of those things apply actually. Um, I mean, not to, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, demean my alma mater, but um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it is, uh, DU was, was great. It was a good place to go. Um, it, it was, it, there was a little bit of sort of like, uh, I'll just say I was not like the world's greatest high school student. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so it wasn't really like I was going to be like going to Harvard or something. Um, I think I was always one of those kind of like classic underachiever, um, you know, kind of, kind of like classic smart, but, but underachieving high school types. Um, I actually, when I, when I got to college, it was like a completely different story. It was like, suddenly I was a great student and (laughs) I loved it and was really engaged. But I think I've always been the kind of person I, well, I always like to tell people I only got one, uh, C the entire time I was in college and it was in a class called worldwide web programming, uh, which is funny <laughs> considering that's what I actually did at the time. I, I was working for like web startups in Denver and the original dot com boom. But part of the reason I, I didn't do well in that class was because it was one of those things where like half of the grade was, uh, like having this notebook that was like perfectly precisely formatted to spec. Uh, and, um, and I, I guess I was sort of like, didn't really take that part of it very seriously. I was like, come on, really? Um, and yeah, it ended up being like half the grade. So that's why I didn't do well in that class. But I think that was sort of like a very high school thing, right? Like, or, or like, uh, elementary school, high school, where you end up doing a lot of what felt to me like just kind of, busy work, you know, like outlining chapters and books or things like that. Um, so, you know, I, I think I, I was not terribly engaged with high school and I consequently didn't do that well. So again, it's not like I, you know, had, uh, had colleges like knocking down my door or anything. Um, but you know, that said, University of Denver is a good school. It's a, a private school. Um, I actually, um, uh, did have a little bit of a, a pre-connection to the computer science department at DU as well, um, which is that uh, this guy, Andrew Burt, ran a public access Unix server in Denver in sort of like the pre-internet days, um, back when I was into like bulletin board systems. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that in my early computing thing. But um, yeah, it was it was like a bulletin board, but it was like a public access Unix server you could dial into. Um, and then you could Telnet, which sort of blew my mind because I'd suddenly be on a computer in Finland and thinking my parents would be getting like a... I didn't really understand how the internet worked at the time. <laughs> 
So yeah. I was I was dreading my parents getting like the long distance bill for me having downloaded some guitar tabulature from uh, from <laughs> Finland, um, which was my first use of the internet, by the way, downloading guitar tabulature from uh, an FTP site in Finland. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I did I did have that connection to like the computer science department through that. Um, so that that made a certain amount of sense. And then yeah, I think you're right. Also, like at the time. Um, I, you know, moving to California was kind of a big deal for me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, a, you know, a seasoned man of the world now, but um, at the time I, uh, I hadn't really quite expanded my horizons so much. So, Well, I want to take a moment to thank my sponsor this time, 23andMe. 23andMe gives you the tools to better understand how your genes may impact your health. This helps you and your doctor find health areas to keep an eye on. With over 240 personalized health, trait, and ancestry reports, the 23andMe DNA Kit is an important tool to help you understand your genetics. 23andMe also gives you ancestry information so you can discover your global origins or perhaps find living relatives. With over a quarter million members, 23andMe is the largest DNA ancestry service in the world. And the analysis is super easy. You just order a kit online, provide a saliva sample, and send it back in a postage-paid envelope. Once the lab has completed your analysis, you get access to all your results in a secure online account. 23andMe results also include fun data points, such as famous ancestors and little stuff like why you might not like the taste of cilantro. Order your own 23andMe DNA kit today for just $99 at 23andMe.com bitsplitting. Now, on a personal level, I actually have been a customer of 23andMe for several years. I ordered the kit many years ago, uh, and it's particularly useful to me because my dad was adopted, so we don't have any family knowledge of where his ancestry comes from. And it was really, just like they say, super easy. I put some saliva in a test tube, mailed it back to them, and a while later I was able to log in and look at a global map of where my DNA was represented. So thanks again to 23andMe for sponsoring the show. Once again, folks, you can go to 23andMe.com slash bitsplitting for your $99 DNA kit. You, you jogged my memory. Talk, uh, first of all, Buzz, I don't think I remember. I don't know if we've, I don't think we've talked about our shared um, early exposure to public access Unix servers. Oh, right. That's, that's something that I had too in Santa Cruz. Um, oh yeah, and you're jogging my memory with these uh, <laughs> downloading tablature or something from right fin- Finland. Was this like a UU net or something? Does that does that ring a bell? Well, yeah. I mean, so what it was is, and it, it still actually exists today. Um, the online guitar archive, <laughs> um, right? Although it, Olga, right? It, it, okay, it exists on the web today. Um, but yeah, so at the time I was in junior high and, um, oh, I also forgot to mention that my, um, my dad worked for the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Um, man, I'm forgetting all this early supercomputing. <laughs> um, yeah, which, which has like a huge, like they have craze. It's like a huge supercomputing, uh, center. So I would go up there and visit, uh, the labs and like visit the guy, this guy, Gary Benetti, who ran, uh, the, the supercomputers up there. Um, and he actually ran a bulletin board, which I think was my first kind of, uh, you know, foray into BBSs. And then eventually I got into some like Denver area BBS, you know, got into the Denver area BBS scene. It was pretty cool. Um, and, uh, then, um, 
Yeah, one day that guy, uh, Gary, shut his BBS down, and I dialed in, and it was like, sorry, I've gone to the internet. And I think that was like the first time I'd ever heard of the internet. <laughs> I was like, what? Right. This is like the best BBS. Uh, I, <laughs> what, what do I do now? How do I get to the internet? Because, um, yeah, at the time it was like you didn't just have internet access. Um, and, yeah, eventually I found um, that, that sort of public access server. Um, and they had just like a sort of pre, preset menu of places you could like telnet or like FTP and telnet to. I couldn't figure out how to use FTP. This was that, that was like, it was like command line FTP, which was like right. kind of confusing. But, um, yeah, eventually I did figure out how to, you know, get in there and, uh, download. Um, I had just bought my first guitar. Um, this is such a like nerdy, like, you know, summer of, uh, 69 story. Uh, where I was like, <laughs> got my, got my first real, got your first real six, six string. string and then, uh, got on the internet. Internet to Telnet to Finland to download some songs to learn. <laughs> so yes. yeah. Anyway, the, yeah. The songs don't just the lyrics don't just don't just flow off the tongue as easily <laughs> as they once did. Do they? Yep. Yep. But yeah, that actually I think that was a major uh, boost. Uh, I think I'm a I think I'm a much better guitar player today uh, because that existed. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's it's one of those ways that the internet and access to information have accelerated some of these. Yeah hobbies that we used to just have to spend that many more hours fiddling, foiling away on. Um, yep. So you said you were working for some web startups in Denver while you were in school. Was that a full-time, were you juggling full-time work? Was it part-time work? How does that, how does that play out? Well, yeah, you know, I think this is another thing that, um, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, especially with the current wave of kind of like, uh, you know, young startup kids and like hacker news and stuff. (laughs) Um, I really, it's funny. I'm really becoming increasingly aware that like, wow, I'm, I'm old. I I was in the original dot-com boom. None of these people remember that. Um, but yeah, I was in the original dot-com boom. Uh, I was in college at the time. And I think again, like it was so, I mean, things are a little bit crazy, right? You know, right now, but, uh, in some ways not as crazy as, the original dot-com boom was. And back then it was sort of like, if you were anybody who knew anything about the web, if you knew HTML, like there was somebody dying to give you a job. It was crazy. Like almost no matter where you were. Um, and you know, it was back when, um, people were like webmasters, right? Like the whole, (laughs) like the whole, uh, thing that, that used to be called a webmaster has now been split into like, you know, 10 different sort of, specialized disciplines, everything from like, you know, front end to, you know, storage to infrastructure, engineering, you know, like stuff like that. It's all been very like, it's, it's been turned into like a real platform. But back then it was like, you were the guy who ran the web server and did the HTML and, uh, and wrote, right. wrote the CGI scripts and like everything. Um, but um, yeah, I, I like to tell people that my first real paying programming job was basically writing incredibly terrible Perl screen scraping scripts for this company that um, it was actually part of the uh, the Roadrunner cable modem service, which still exists today. But um, the whole the arm of it that I was in there in Denver did sort of like local content deals uh, with like uh, partners. Um, in all these different cities. So like, they'd be like the Jacksonville Herald or, you know, creative loafing in Atlanta or whatever. Um, and they'd say, okay, we did one of these content deals. And this is another thing, uh, that I think people have a hard time imagining. Not only was this like pre RSS, 
This was before XML even existed. <laughs> um, so there really was no kind of like standard data interchange at all. Um, so they would come and say, uh, okay, we did this deal with uh, the Jacksonville Herald. We need to get their headlines into our site. And uh, my job would basically be to look at their homepage and kind of scrutinize the HTML and say, hmm, I could write a regular expression for that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I maintain this like giant battery of like gross uh, Perl screen scraping scripts. And every day I'd come into work and someone would be like, oh, the such and such script broke. And I'd have to like sit down, look at how they redesigned their site and uh, redo my regular expressions. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that was basically um, uh, more or less part-time while I was going to college. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah. And it was, I mean, it was great. They actually paid for my last two years of college. So that was pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. And uh, you, you sort of hinted at this, I think, talking about your connection to somebody in the computer science department at the university. Uh-huh. Um, but did you end up earning your degree in computer science or a computer-related field? No. Well, so my um, I did this sort of like bullshit interdisciplinary major thing. <laughs> um, my uh, The University of Denver at the time had just started a kind of like interdisciplinary digital media thing. Um, and that was actually, I took, I, I minored in computer science and had, um, eh, more or less enough classes for a major, but it was, it was nice cause it was a BA and I could also take like design classes. Uh, I took a lot of design classes. Um, I could also, yeah, it was just, it was more interdisciplinary. Originally I was also going to be a double major, um, in English as well, which you couldn't, you can't double major BA and BS. Um, so that was part of the reason for that. But I ended up bumping that down to a minor because I was like, I got to get out of college. <laughs> yeah, got to get out sooner or later. And uh, tell us a little bit about how you did end up kind of gaining that adventurousness to get you out to California because you could have, if you look back at this. Uh, early experience working as a web programmer in Denver, you could have, I could imagine you ending uh, up kind of sticking with web programming, sticking with web startups. And you you told us already you had this fascination with Apple from an early age. But um, what, what was the sort of, what was the gateway to working on desktop, desktop stuff? Well, yeah. So this is actually a longer story than you might think. But um, so all through college, I worked for web companies, was very in demand. Like they, they, wanted me so bad that if anything, they were just like trying to get me out of college. But I was like, no, I've got to finish. But they like paid my last two years of college. It was like, it was a crazy time. It was like, if you knew anything about the web, it was like people were desperate for you. Um, But then that, and I think this is one reason I have a little bit of a different perspective on uh, the cyclical nature of the tech industry than a lot of people. Um, Because as we all know now, that didn't last. Um, in uh, 1999, 2000, things started to go south a little bit. And by the time I graduated in 2001, the dot-com boom had really fully gone bust. Um, so in early 2001, when I was finally starting to like, I had finally kind of wrapped up and was finally starting to put feelers out there, um, things were really bad. Um, they were bad everywhere. Companies were like collapsing left and right. Uh, you know, the stock market had, had crashed. Um, and I think this is hard to, um, this is, this is probably hard. (laughs) I've, I've say this, like, I've said this like a hundred times over the course of this, this is hard for people to imagine today. Like I have so much insight. Um, but 
I, I do think it's a little bit like if you're someone who's, who's just kind of like out of college and starting a startup today, um, or if you're an engineer who's just coming out of like, a, you know, Stanford or something and being recruited like crazy, I think it's hard to imagine what it was like at that time because I was just graduating and had been in demand and suddenly it was like not only had things dried up, but even the concept of like consumer web startups was like dead. It was like nobody was doing that. Um, like the only the only jobs around were like enterprise jobs, especially where I was in Denver, but but really everywhere. It was like the whole industry had just gone into like hibernation. Um, and so basically what ended up happening was I had one interview, um, like one kind of really good interview uh, with Amazon.com where they flew me up to Seattle and um, they gave me a day of interviews and it mostly went pretty well, but there was this one guy who clearly was on the sort of like Microsoft style interview question train. And um, uh, I think he asked me some kind of like brain teasery questions that I sort of flubbed. Uh, And so basically I didn't get that job. And then it was basically like nine months of like unemployment. It was, it was bad. I've never, when, when people talk about, um, when you read articles in the New York Times and stuff now about like structural unemployment and things like that, I, I have a pretty real sense of what that's like because it was this it was the sort of situation where the longer I was unemployed, the harder it was to get a job. I was very junior. Um, I, I felt like I was constantly having to try to oversell my experience because there were just no um, opportunities available for someone who didn't have like ten years of experience um, and. You know, I did all kinds of things like I um, I became a like certified Java programmer and stuff like that. Um, and uh, but still, I just like could not uh, get a job to save my life. It was terrible. And um, finally, uh, September 11th, 2001 happened. And I woke up that day and saw what had happened in New York and was like, wow, well, I won't be hearing about any jobs today. <laughs> and right. weirdly enough, uh, my old boss, Anita, called me up um, and uh, offered me a job. <laughs> so I actually got a job on September uh, 11th, 2001, after like nine months of unemployment. Um, and it was a Java job for a um, – uh, it, was, it was like very kind of like boring enterprise Java um, for like a, a mortgage company. So that was sort of hilarious because it was like I had gone from like one boom – into another. <laughs> uh, I went right into sort of the, the subprime mortgage boom. Um, and, uh, but, you know, there was a lot of money in that business at that time, which is why I got a job. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I did, I did an impressive Java stuff there. It was absolutely as horrible as, as you've heard, it, you know, it was, uh, enterprise Java beans and all of that, you know, uh, all that stuff, which gave me a lot of perspective on, uh, terrible APIs and things like that. Uh, no offense to the Java people out there. Um, but, um, I basically, I was kind of, I was glad to have a job, but I was kind of bored with my job to be perfectly honest. Um, and, at the time, Steve Jobs had just come back to Apple. Um, Apple was just kind of doing their first kind of like really inspiring uh, things like, you know, iTunes and iMovie. Like Apple was kind of getting back into the, the apps game. Um, and I, I really, really was kind of enthralled with what Apple was doing. And I kind of looked at the web stuff I was doing and was like, ugh, this is like so limited. Like you can't – now you can actually do – all kinds of stuff on the web. But back then, what you could do in JavaScript and CSS was so constrained. Um, and I finally was just like, you know what? This is, this is ridiculous. So I'm not, 
uh, I, I want to learn like native apps. Um, also, at the time, I also decided, uh, you know what, like, I'm going to set my, my goals a little higher. I want to get a job with Apple. Um, so basically, I, I, I set myself the goal, I'm going to get a job at Apple, and I'm going to learn Cocoa programming. So for basically just like months uh, after uh, work, I was just like working on Cocoa programming, teaching myself work, um, t- teaching myself um, Cocoa and stuff. And um, uh, I finally decided like, all right, you know what? I want to get Apple's attention. What could get Apple's attention? Um, and the iPod had just come out and I was obsessed with the iPod. Um, and uh, par- part of what I was kind of obsessed with was it had metadata, which I had been, um, <laughs> this really outs me as a nerd, I had been a big uh, mini-disc fan uh, before the iPod came out. And part of the reason was I liked the metadata. I was, I was kind of an obsessive like music cataloger, and I liked the metadata. Um, and I was like, you know what? The iPod is awesome. I'm going to figure out the uh, metadata database format. Um, there had been other people who had written like iPod song copying software, but nobody had figured out the uh, proprietary database format. Um, so I basically spent months in a hex editor, uh, <laughs> like looking at the iPod database and trying to figure out how it worked. And eventually I finally figured out that it was basically structured the same way as QuickTime. Um, it, the file format's very similar to the sort of like the QuickTime Atom concept. Um, and so I, I basically was able to write kind of like a, a very rudimentary parser. And then once I had kind of like the skeleton of the the file, uh, I could sort of look at the individual records and try to figure out what they were based on strings and things like that. Um, and over the course of a long period of time, I, I kind of <laughs> reverse engineered enough of the database to write uh, an app that... Uh, basically presented the database and then would let you search it and copy songs to whatever computer you happen to be on. Um, so yeah, I was like, well, um, and I, originally I wasn't going to charge for it because the whole, again, the whole goal was to get a job with Apple. But at the last minute I was like, you know, this is a lot of work. I'm going to charge $8 for it. <laughs> so I put it out there. Um, it was actually really successful for a shockingly long time. Um, I, I finally shut it down like maybe six months ago just because it's in such a state of disrepair. But at its peak, it was actually making very respectable money. Like people like Walt Mossberg were writing very nice things about it. It just got to the point where it was sort of like the thing, if you wanted to copy songs off your iPod, this was the thing to do it. Um, And uh, it also did have the side effect of um, I did end up getting a job at Apple. (laughs) So, And and do you credit PodWorks with, leading to that yeah definitely um i especially you know the the group that eventually hired me at apple which which was a very interesting group of people um they i i think especially put a very high uh a high value on having demonstrated um you know competence through having developed your own software um and i i think that carried a lot of weight with the people who who eventually hired me at apple and what was that group um, so it was a group called Software Update Integration, which is <laughs> very confusing. So um, I, I think this, this structure has somewhat changed a little bit at Apple since then. But um, within uh, the part of Apple called the Program Office, which is basically the, uh, the group in charge of shipping OS X updates, um, there was an integration group, which was basically in charge of integration testing. Um, so, which, you know... I, 
initially you might sort of think like, oh, QA, yawn, that's boring. But it was actually a very, very interesting place to start my career at Apple because, uh, first of all, everyone in that group was like a crazy genius. Um, I, we had, uh, you know, Peter Ammon, uh, who writes the Ridiculous Fish blog, uh, was my new hire buddy and had the office next to me. And he was like, an, he was like one of the most insane, like genius people I'd ever met. Um, if anything, really, I kind of came in there and was like, wow, I'm a little scared. These people are way smarter than me and are going to figure out how stupid I am any second now. Um, but um, I, being around, first of all, being around those kinds of people, uh, I learned a lot. And second, a couple other things I learned. One, um, we were really, our job was to write automated test software to, to test builds of the OS. Um, and so <clears throat> you learn a lot about the operating system, for one thing, and um, uh, it's, it's different components, things like that. Um, and then the other thing about it is you learn, and I think this is the most important thing, you learn a lot about releasing software because OS X updates are just enormous projects. I, I, I think on a scale involving, it, it, just on a scale that, that I, I think most startups would have a hard time conceiving because it, it involves so many different groups all um, putting stuff into different components that make up the whole OS. But you have to sort of like look at both the individual components and the overall performance of the OS. Uh, you know, you have to be concerned about things like how the the overall memory usage of the OS is trending and things like that. You have to be concerned about binary compatibility, like are we breaking third-party apps? Um, it's just it's a it's just an incredible it's a huge undertaking and Apple um, definitely makes it look easy, but there were a lot of people I, I often tell people that the people that I really came out of Apple admiring were not really kind of like the crazy Steve Jobs, you know, mercurial genius type people. Um, they were people like uh, Brenda Cicerone, who was the what they called the bugmeister for OS X, um, whose job was basically to just have the whole state of the project in her head and just be a ruthless editor of like... Um, Okay, we're we're taking this. We're not taking that. It's too late in the process. That's too risky. Like like judging the risk level of a change, um, things like that. I mean, I, I really learned. That's where I learned what what shipping software is really all about, and how it's a process of kind of like. Uh, partly, I think what I learned is it's a process of compromise. Um, you know, I think people think of Apple as like everything Apple does is perfect and, uh, you know, like everyone there is such a genius that everything just, you know, uh, comes together. But in reality, it's a fairly messy, ruthless process of, um, even, even, you know, triaging, making decisions about like, um, what, uh, well, well, like we, we know, uh, we know this is a problem, but you know what? Uh, we've got a ship cause we have this event. So we're going to take this and this, but this we're going to, um, punt to the next release. And I think that's the other thing. It teaches you to take a long-term view of software, right? Um, instead of thinking of things in terms of like, this is this perfect release we're going to put out, you you get good at sort of thinking in terms of like where you want to be next release, two releases from now, you know, next year, things like that. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Brenda because, uh, you know, I worked at Apple starting quite a bit earlier than you did. Yes. I started there in 95 or so, and Brenda was actually a big part of my um, group's workflow oh, yeah. experience as well. And She's part of a lot of people's um, workflow. Well, she was. Right. She's retired yeah, She now. was. Yeah. She's retired. And when I started working with her, she was uh, Brenda Knudsen, I think her name was. Oh, um, I didn't know her back then. <laughs> and um, 
But I find that um, this is one of those like intangible, or I guess it's tangible, but it's um, it's one of those skills that maybe gets overlooked when you think of your um, the, the various things you take from different workplaces, um, and that kind of like bug workflow is also something I think I got from Apple, and I kind of mm-hmm. like I, I I find myself today to this day typing things say into a bug report. Mm-hmm. that are very, very much in the spirit of how it would have been handled, um, even down to like, you know, shorthand jargon that's by no means limited to Apple, but stuff that Brenda would totally use. <laughs> like, yeah. Like like punting or, you know, um, way, the way we would refer to things as regressions or not. Um, Absolutely. That kind of language is a, is a shorthand that we get to take from that. Well, and what, what's fascinating... You know, most people on the outside of Apple think of Radar as this like horrible web app, <laughs> um, which for most people outside it is. But um, it, the internal version of Radar, I, I think, is fascinating because it it just is like the accretion of years and years of Apple culture and process, um, and and kind of this like one you know, monumental application. Uh, but yeah, people like her, you know, really defined a lot of that. And, and I don't know, I, I, it's funny cause like nearly every, um, ex Apple person I know, um, who sort of goes out into the startup world or, or does their own thing, I think weirdly finds themselves cause, cause when you're there, radar is kind of this like pain in the ass thing. Um, but it, it's weird. You, I, I have found myself and I know a lot of other people like, um, like Ryan Nielsen, for example, um, who have commented that they they've found themselves really missing radar and and kind of shocked that the actual bu- the bug tracking options out there are so poor <laughs> in the rest of the world. So right, yeah, I mean it's it's really it, it, I always describe it as like a um a, a my it's like an SQL database that you can <laughs> interact with anywhere from like direct manipulation of the tables right. up to up to the like terrible you know, facade of, of, of radar web. Right. Um, but, uh, you, you know, uh, you mentioned Ryan Nielsen. He, um, he went, he, he left Apple, uh, a couple years ago, started a company that, uh, makes an app called hype. Yes. Um, and, uh, a lot of folks left Apple over the years. Uh, fortunately for Apple, it's been a kind of a slow, gradual exodus, uh, obviously, a lot of great people have stayed there. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of great new people join the ranks every every day, probably every month at least. Um, and you did also end up leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, we have chatted already for quite a while, Buzz. I think mm. we could probably chat for another two, three, five hours <laughs> about um, everything else that went on in your professional career after Apple. But just to sort of like maybe fast forward it a little bit... Um, you left Apple. I remember this. Um, I remember the. I remember the day or the the time when you left because I think you were going to quote unquote go indie, mm-hmm. and that involved I think working on Podworks again, working mm-hmm. on Cocolicious stuff like that. But then, um, how much time passed before you ended up working with the folks at Square? Well, um, I also did Bird Feed in in. The intervening time, which of course, which right. was a, a whole story in and of itself, um, learned learned some things from that as well. Birdfeed was your iOS, yeah, one of the earliest iOS Twitter clients, yeah, and a very popular among its 
fans, myself included. I like to say um, it was the the Velvet Underground of Twitter clients. Like like ten people bought it, but they were, <laughs> but but we all liked it before it sold out. Well, and also something like well, you know what people say about like the Velvet Underground and Nico that like you know ten people bought it, but they all started bands. Um, yes, it, it's right, sort right. of like you know not that many people bought it, but I think it was just proportionally influential in some respects to that. Uh, but yeah, it was not like a huge commercial success. I, I was definitely, um, for a while I was, uh, kind of Lauren Brichter and I were engaged in sort of, a, a death struggle, <laughs> uh, which, which was, um, th- that, but that's a whole other story. I mean, I definitely learned a lot from, right. from bird feed about, uh, how not to ship an app. <laughs> well, so so for folks who don't know, Lauren Brichter, before his current fame as uh, the the developer of Letterpress, uh, was the developer of Tweety, also an early iOS Twitter app, and 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 it was a great competitor for you in a lot of ways, I think, because there was a dramatic difference in the kind of aesthetic you were going for. Yeah, um, and you were working with Nevin Mergen of. Yes. Uh, of uh, current, he, he was he was at the time and currently still is um, designer with Panic. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, Birdfeed ended up getting um, sold to Brizzly. Yeah. Which then sold to AOL. To AOL. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, in a sense, it's sort of sad because um, you know you lost the opportunity then to continue working on bird feed and this like thing that you had put a lot of energy into and was a struggle for you to compete with other Twitter apps was not something you could work with anymore. But then that must have also been kind of a blessing after feeling all the ups and downs of <laughs> yeah. taking that struggle. Well, you know, I, the whole subject of like Twitter clients as a business is kind of a, <laughs> obviously a little bit of a loaded subject with a lot of people. Um, I, I think it was pretty clear to me that, uh, that, the Twitter clients look. I, I think in the in the early days of the iPhone, there were a bunch of categories of things where there was a gap, and the first sort of like thing that managed to be a competent entry in that gap um, that, that that sort of hit all the major points it needed to was going to be cuz I don't I don't just want to be like yeah yeah the first mover advantage whatever cuz it wasn't just that um but I think in, in the case of like Twitter clients for example um Tweety ended up being just kind of the first thing in the market that hit all of the right things it needed to that that the previous competitors hadn't quite hit um I concentrated on a lot of things like like I was obsessed with local caching, which now is like, you know, it's a very important thing. Like nearly every uh, social networking client for the iPhone now does, you know, strong local caching. Um, and it was something that I was, I considered to be very important and sort of a differentiator at the time. But I think one of the things I learned was it was not what was going to win the game at that point. Uh, what was going to win the game was something out there that was that performed well and did everything that Twitter was supposed to do, uh, without any sort of like weird limitations. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I think in some ways that's why, um, I, I went down a lot of rabbit trails of like, yes, I I've got it. And this is before core data, by the way. So I was doing like insane things like implementing my own ORM, which is a terrible idea. Don't ever get into that um but yeah i was doing a lot of stuff that really an or orm is a object relational model uh, object relational mapping yeah i i wrote 
I wrote my own sort of Coco object relational mapping thing, um, which, you know, that was just like a sub project of the bird feed projects. Uh, so that was kind of the kind of like level of insanity there. Um, also the other things that I always say about bird feed is, um, one, I think at the time it's, it's easy to forget now, but at the time nobody really knew, um, the, the sort of design of, of social networking clients, um, has become uh, on the iPhone has become very kind of like, you know, there's a fair amount of variation, but there are certain kind of patterns that have emerged as kind of standard. Um, and at the time that I started working on bird feed, nobody really knew what an iPhone Twitter client should look like. Um, there were a lot of things that I think, uh, Lauren kind of invented and standardized. And I think there were also things that, uh, bird feed sort of invented and standardized. Like for example, I, I really still believe that bird feeds, uh, profile design has kind of, uh, not only informed uh, future Tweety updates, but also um, just a lot of the rest of iOS clients, uh, social client design. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it was it was partly like fi- figuring out what it should look like was tough. And then the technical challenges uh, on iOS at the time were much greater in some ways. Uh, we all remember the articles about uh, how to get 60 frame per second scrolling. <laughs> um, things like that. So all in all, it was very daunting, but I think, I think the biggest single biggest thing I learned from it, other than just like Twitter clients weren't a great market, um, is that I really should have been concentrating on the, I don't want to say minimum viable product to use the, the, you know, fashionable startup lingo, but the, the thing that hit all the notes it needed to, to kind of dominate that market. And I, I often make a similar, you know, uh, comparison to Instagram, by the way. Like, I, I really think a lot of people were really blindsided by, like, wow, how did Instagram become such a big thing? But I think it was really the first mobile photo sharing thing that just kind of hit all the right notes that it was supposed to. Right. A, min- a minimum kick-ass product. Yeah, I guess I guess maybe something like that. Because I don't want to just sort of be like... Because uh, I, I think the problem with, like, minimum viable product is it's like, well, what how do you define, how do you know, how do you define that? You know? Um, but I, I think, it, I guess it's part of, it's just like having a good sense of, uh, of the market and knowing like as a user yourself, like what, what are you frustrated with? I mean, I think early Twitter clients, there were a, a, a lot of them were built on kind of like assumptions about Twitter that go back to the, the battle days of Twitter, uh, when they had scaling problems and, um, I think there was like this narrow gap of time where Twitter had solved their scaling problems and the iPhone was out, but nobody had an iPhone Twitter client that was sort of built with the right assumptions to provide the kind of user experience people wanted. And so I think there was like a narrow window you had to hit. Um, and I think like Lauren did that perfectly. I think he he figured out exactly what he needed to do. He did just that, got it out and iterated fast. Whereas I did kind of like, the exact opposite. <laughs> I, I basically mm-hmm. was like, I, and, and then, you know, the problem is in a situation like that, you get into this kind of arms race, right? Where now it was like every time Lauren did something, now bird feed had to do it as well. Um, and that just made it harder and harder to ship because I, I perceived like if I, oh, if I don't have this, no one will take it seriously. <laughs> so that's why it sort right. of felt like I was just like in this, unwinnable race to, to try to kind of catch up to that market attention. Um, so yeah, anyway, that was kind of the big learning experience from bird feed. So I guess in that sense, it was really a relief to be able to put behind at least that sense of 
unwinnable race that you're fighting at. And um, when you when you stopped working on uh, Bird Feed, you know, as we said, you um, you sold it to Brizzly. Was this uh, at that point? Had you already moved from San Francisco to New York? Yeah, Bird Feed was all done in New York. It was all here. Okay. Yeah, I'm 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 uh, I'm remembering. Obviously, you lived in California when you were working at Apple, mm-hmm. uh, and then did you move to New York pretty shortly after quitting Apple? Well, when I left Apple, I was really burnt out. Um, it was my last project there, which was as an engineer uh, in in the pro apps part of Apple. Um, was actually just a really, it was like a year slog. It was a huge project. And by the time I was done with that, I, I was like, man, I, I need a break. Um, and, you know, I actually had enough money saved up that I could afford to take some time off. So, uh, yeah, I basically went on, I guess, what you might call my, my vision quest, my walkabout. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I actually went back to Colorado for a while. And then I, um, I, went, I spent some time in L.A. You know, I, I was just kind of – I had an idea that I was just going to kind of be an itinerant uh, developer for a while. And um, I was actually – but then and, – and I did have plans to visit New York – but um, it's funny how life has a way of kind of uh, <laughs> life. Was life's what's happened? What happens while you're busy making other plans? And um, I was in. I was on a road trip from Denver, uh, and I was going to go all the way through New Mexico and West Texas, and, and go to Austin. And um, I had just been introduced to uh, this girl, and. Um, I we were I really thought it was going to just sort of be like ah you know well I'll look you up if, she was in New York uh, and I was I really thought it was going to be like if I'll look you up if I'm ever in New York but what, um, I ended up talking to her a bit and then we ended up talking more and more and um, I was in Santa Fe and she was like oh you know it's too bad you can't be in New York this weekend um, I uh, you know uh, <laughs> I, and I I basically was like you know what I can. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I, I came out to New York. I'd never been here. It was the first time I'd ever been here. Um, had a great, uh, weekend. And then I came back for a week. Um, and then things started getting more serious with her. And then I was here every other month. My, my friend, Harry, who, uh, works at Foursquare, um, but was at Google at the time, had an apartment on the Lower East Side that he, uh, was, uh, going to be gone from for a month because he was going to be in Mountain View at Google there. And, um, I was like, Hey, why don't I just, uh, sublet that. So then I sublet Harry's apartment for a month, and then it got to the point where I was spending every other month here. And uh, finally, I was like, you know what? I think it's time to move. <laughs> and uh, finally, things worked out very well, and uh, we ended up eventually moving in together. And now we're engaged and getting married in September. So, well, congratulations on that news. Uh, and um, you know, Buzz, I had a I had a concern that this would happen with you. There's so much to talk about. I am going to. Um, speed through two major chapters in your professional life which uh, which are your um which are your uh experiences at square uh working from new york and um you you were working remotely for square which is a san francisco based company mm-hmm. um and then you went on to work for tumblr a new york manhattan based company yeah but i want to get i want to skim skim by those not that there's not plenty to talk about uh with regard to your experiences at those companies but you have um you know within the past year i think it's been a year or so you you left tumblr um and you are working now on a new indie pursuit mm-hmm. which is a company called the brooklyn computer club with phil bowden um this sounds exciting to me it sounds like uh first of all it's 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 different from your previous 
indie pursuits in that you are starting from the outset with a partner mm-hmm. who's not who's not just like a um a hired you know designer or um, something like that uh you it sounds like you are do you are you both like equal yeah. equal parts yeah we're equal partners it's it's an actual real uh new york state corporation and we're we're equal partners in it that sounds uh that sounds exciting so um you are working um from out of homes and out of rented office in Brooklyn. Yeah, we actually have a uh, a co-working space that we work out of. My, our our friend Rick uh owns the space. It's called uh, Secret Clubhouse. And uh how have you found this uh, adjustment to working with a partner? Mm-hmm. I work alone, so mm-hmm. looking at it from my point of view, I would be afraid of kind of giving up control over some things. On the other hand, you have this other person to take up to pick up the slack and to take some of the the burden of the day-to-day frustrations and to balance the disappointments oh yeah well it, you know it's it's actually i think if if, uh, if brianna my fiance was here she would definitely be immediately like oh no he needs to work with a partner because uh, i think she saw me go through the whole kind of insane bird feed experience um and i i think i partly just need somebody to kind of like uh <laughs> to, to sort of sometimes sort of check my perfectionistic tendencies in some ways. Um, so that, that helps. Um, I think it also, I don't know, it, it's, I actually, Philip and I actually have very, it, it works out really well because we have, I think a very similar kind of energy. I think we have very similar sensibility. Um, and I think we also happen to have very complementary sort of skill sets, um, so the way things usually break down is, um, you know, Philip has a ton of experience doing like some of the world's most difficult custom UI stuff. Um, he's worked with some pretty demanding designers, uh, it, you know, at, at Gowalla, at Tumblr. Um, and um, he definitely, that was one of the things that I always found very difficult to do <laughs> just the sort of like custom UI stuff just cause so much of it involves like, you just have to know all the kind of like folklore about, uh, all the, the ins and outs of, of, <laughs> of doing, you know, I don't know, subclassing this UI class or, you know, how to, how to make this animation look smooth or things like that. Um, right. Philip has been through all that so many times he, he has it down. He can build uh, custom UI faster than anyone I've ever met. Um, so that works out really well. And I think, you know, the, the thing that's a little bit different today about doing this kind of programming, like, you know, cocoa programming, uh, sort of professionally, especially in a consulting situation, is everybody is doing super custom UI. Like, I, we haven't had a client that wasn't doing just, like, basically entirely custom UI. Um, and so I think it's it's becoming increasingly important to have somebody who kind of specializes in that. I mean, I guess almost a little bit like a front end developer on the web, um, just because in, a, in our projects, it's, it's gotten to the point where it is at least half the time, if not 75% of the time, just building custom UI. Um, and then I happen to have, um, as I mentioned, you know, at one point I, I <laughs> basically, I, I've written some version of the download JSON from the internet and cache it and display it app so many times now <laughs> i've made right. i've made all the mistakes um and i've really kind of developed an approach for it that i think is like it, you know i mean i don't want to speak too soon but i i think it is is really kind of bordering on um 
kind of almost like a a, fra- a framework, uh, almost kind of like a Rails like framework. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so I think be- between and basically on on most of the projects we do, things mostly break down in terms of I kind of like do all the app infrastructure, and Philip is kind of free to just build out the copious copious custom UI. Um, and so yeah, that works out pretty well too, just in terms of like. Um, I think we generally agree on on a, on our approaches, and I think we're usually working on different sort of parts of the app anyway. So I don't feel like we're um, stepping on each other's toes too much. Also, you know, the thing about consulting as opposed to doing your own projects is like it's it's a pretty focused thing. Um, you know, the, things are pretty nailed down. It's pretty pretty clear what you're building, um, and in a lot of ways, it's just a matter of like like how can we pragmatically get this done for our, our clients as quickly as we can. <laughs> so right. I, I think it, it makes it easier to sort of set aside any uh, ego. <laughs> right. And that's, and that can help, um, yeah, keep you focused. If you don't have that, per, if you don't have your personal, I mean, you obviously want to do the best job you can for your client, but at the end of the day, you, you might have a different perspective on it. If it's, <laughs> if it's not, you know, Buzz Anderson's like holy contribution to the world's like, cultural <laughs> well and you know software repository it, yeah exactly and i i think conversely it's also been very good for me too in in terms of like it's just um i think both working with philip both having a partner um and having this kind of like work i think is really i, I keep i keep likening um consulting to um it reminds me a little bit of uh of groundhog's day um in the sense that it's like you're living the same day over and over. Um, you run into sort of like the same problems, both in terms of like, uh, you know, client relations and kind of like engineering problems and just kind of project management things. Um, but unlike when you, you know, sort of work for a company for a long time and work on the same product over multiple releases, when you're constantly sort of building 1.0s for people, which is mostly what Philip and I do, it's like you, you continually run, run into these same problems over and over, um, but you do it at kind of an accelerated pace where you're kind of doing it every like, you know, three months or so. Um, and I think that's actually, that was not something I anticipated. It's actually been surprisingly helpful for me personally, I think, because it's really helped me, I think, identify uh, just, yeah, things that I need to work on, things that I could do better at. It's helped me become, I think, a more like focused, pragmatic programmer. Um, yeah, so I, I, I've actually been kind of surprised. It, it's been, I wasn't sure if I was going to like it, but um, I actually find it, it suits me surprisingly well. <laughs> Well, that's great to hear, uh, Buzz, because I know that um, I've known you for a long time now, and so I've actually had the chance to talk to you over the years as you've kind of like celebrated and bemoaned some of the various aspects of different jobs here and there. And um, it sounds like you kind of felt out and and, and took what you know you learned something from all of these jobs. You had you know at Apple, you learned the the benefits of um, you know process and w- working with you know, have, like you were saying, having all these disparate pieces come together and build something big and great. And, um, you know, I'm sure you learned a lot from your experiences at Square and Tumblr. And um, it's always great to sort of see how things kind of coalesce into maybe a more crystalline version of what you want your career to be like. And I think um, 
I'm excited to see what kind of work you guys are doing. I know you can't really talk too much about it now. Um, it's a consulting company. You're doing work for clients. Um, do you have any? Do you have any plans for uh, any? Is there any possibility of self branded stuff? Yeah. No. I guess I, I sort of forgot to. I have a, a lot of people tell me I have a very elliptical approach to conversation. So sometimes I forget things that I had intended to mention. But yes, I probably should explain more about that. Um, yeah. So you know, I think Philip and I are both. Um, veterans of many startups. Um, and I think at this point we both kind of wanted to do something, um, that was, that was smaller, um, that was, uh, more kind of like, um, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not one of these like, oh, you know, venture capital is evil. We'd never take venture capital. But I also don't think, you know, we didn't want to just like run out and like get a bunch of money for some vague thing. Um, I think we have a bunch of different ideas that, um, we'd like to work on. But I think we'd, we're, we're very interested in kind of doing those on our own terms. Um, and I think there's also, I think our, our industry, I think the tech industry has a little bit of a, a problem in that, um, the, the funding model for everything is basically predicated right now on everything has to be the next billion dollar company, right? Um, and I actually think in some ways, um, my friend Matt Hackett, who I, I worked with at Tumblr and now is kind of doing his own startup, has this theory that I think is really correct that um, we need to move almost to, to more of like a Hollywood model um, in, in the sense that Nobody, you know, like like TV networks, for example, basically say, uh, we're going to, all right, we're going to order like um, 10 pilots, you know, for the next season. Um, some of them will pan out, some won't. Um, some will be go on to be, you know, big shows. Some will, you know, have a limited appeal, make some money in syndication. But, but nobody... <laughs> it, nobody approaches everything as like you're building the next NBC... Uh, <laughs> when, when, you know, right. They, There's not the huge, like if you want to have the most successful TV show maybe, but you don't need to disrupt the entire industry with every effort. Well, and, and yeah, there, I think the thing that's nice about it is you can, I, in, in, in sort of startup land right now, everything, there are a lot of things out there that are pretending to be, there, there are a lot of great ideas out there that are, that are wonderful, uh, apps, for example, that, you know, will have some appeal and um, are totally great ideas that should exist in the world. But I think people, a lot of people are deluding themselves into thinking like there always has to be a bigger story. It has to be like, this has to be, we're building the next Facebook here. Um, when in actuality, a lot of these things are not the next Facebook. A lot of these things are just the next, you know, friends or whatever. <laughs> um, right. And, and um, I, I, I think right now that I, I think Hollywood has eventually evolved this model um, that that sort of acknowledges this, right? That's sort of like, okay, for this show, we're going to expect it to make this kind of money over its lifetime. It'll make this kind of money in syndication. We can justify this kind of budget. Um, we'll need the, this kind of expertise. Um, and, you know, we'll bring these people in and there are people in that business who are sort of, um, I guess, artisans, if you will, um, who, who move from project to project. Um, and I, I think a lot of things about the tech industry would work better if things worked a little more like that instead of everyone sort of trying to pretend that everything is the next Facebook or Google. Um, and <clears throat> so a couple of things about that. One, um, in some ways, I think um, what, what Philip and I are doing, 
works very well with that model because we're sort of um, we are sort of like these artisans who can come in and um, there's not a lot of like really high level iOS expertise out there right now. We can sort of come in and say, "Hey, we'll help you build um, this 1.0 app in a probably much shorter time with much higher quality than anyone else you could get to do it." Um, and then, you know, after that, you can sort of transition to maybe a, a more junior internal person or something like that. Um, and we've actually done that a fair amount, and it's actually worked fairly well. The second thing about that is in terms of we, we definitely do want to do our own stuff, but I, I think I've seen – I've been around startups enough to have seen kind of what happens when um, when when the kind of creative impulse – um, can be a little bit at odds with kind of the market impulse where everything has to be the next uh, Google or Facebook. And consequently, I think that's partly why we're approaching things the way we are. Um, I think Philip and I would like to be able to do, to, to scratch some of our own um, itches in terms of things we want to build without having the pressure of like everything having to have a bigger story or turn into like a huge company. Um, and, you know, I, I guess my philosophy is I'm not necessarily, I'm not like, you know, some anti like startup person. I, you know, if, if one of these ever seemed like it had legs and, and had, you know, bigger possibilities, then, you know, I think it would be time to, to look at, you know, Oh, maybe it's worth looking into getting some funding or something to scale this, but <clears throat> I don't think we want to start out that way. So, yeah. Um, so basically, we're we're doing we're doing the consulting um, partly because we enjoy it, honestly. Um, and we have a number of clients that we've helped um, in a number of different ways. We've built 1.0s for people. We've come in and helped people just sort of work out some performance problems with their apps, things like that. And I find that very rewarding in its own respect. Um, but yeah, eventually we're also hoping to carve out some time to to work on our own stuff. And I think that's partly why we kind of want to keep it small. Um, so we don't start having kind of like big structural um, – you, you look at you know something like Mad Men. <laughs> I think I really – now that I'm in the consulting business, I, I sort of understand a lot of the drama of Mad Men a lot more because I think a lot of agencies get into this thing where you, you, the further along you get, you start getting into higher and higher echelons of clients. Um, like in Mad Men, you'll see like, oh, we could get a car. We could get Tomahawk Airlines or whatever, but we'll have to like – hire like 10 people for that. And then you conversely, you also see the drama of like, Oh, we lost Tom Hawk airlines, no Christmas bonuses this year, or we're going to have to like, you know, lay five people off. Right. Um, so I think part of our model is, um, we, we want to help a lot of people and we want to work with a lot of startups and help them build 1.0s and stuff. But I think we're also not, we're emphatically not interested in like building a big agency where we have kind of like clients that are structural parts of the business. Right. Well, it's kind of a nice setup you have there with your with your attitude and approach of presenting it as let us kickstart your development of a great app. And it also gives you the sort of a built-in opportunity to continually move on to fresh stuff and have, you know, different inspirations on behalf of your clients. Uh, seems like a pretty good model. Yeah. And again, like I said, I've been, I've actually been really pleasantly surprised by how much I just sort of even enjoy the consulting aspect of it. It's kind of fun in some ways because especially a lot of the people we work with are early stage startups and that's kind of the fun part of a startup. Um, right. So yeah, it's, it's actually been really fun kind of helping people by coming in and helping them solve a problem um, and then kind of moving on to the next person. We get to work on a lot of different stuff. It's pretty fun. 
Well, that's cool, Buzz. I look forward to um, learning about some of your some of your clients as the uh, as you get the opportunity to share some of that news. I know some of them will probably remain secret forever, <laughs> but uh, maybe some of them won't. Uh, and uh, I think we should probably wrap this show up. It's been really great having you uh, on the show. Uh, for folks who want to get get in touch with you or follow you, uh, you're on Twitter as Buzz. And um, you have a personal blog on Tumblr, which is log.scifihifi.com. Yep. Um, you also run a cocktails-oriented <laughs> blog called Modern Classics, which you can find at barbook.tumblr.com. Yeah, I need to update that more. <laughs> well, it's it's very it's very nice. Uh, we, we, there's so much we didn't get a chance to really go into um, about your interests and your expertise, but. Uh, Hey, maybe one of these days you can uh, you can break my um, my habit of of never having uh, the same person on twice, and we'll <laughs> okay. bring you back and talk some more about that kind of stuff. Um, are there any other links? Uh, I don't think you really have like a um, uh, an official page for now, the company yet. That's uh, we've been uh, we've kind of been too busy to really even uh, get something like that done. We um, our friend um, Ed Nassinal, who's a super talented designer, is uh, is doing a logo for us and everything. But um, yeah, eventually, I'm hoping this summer we'll have a little more time to kind of uh, take some time to <laughs> to get a web presence up and things like that. But um, but yeah, that's uh, that's not up there yet. Cool. We'll just we'll just we'll, we'll just look forward to that. Um, and in the meantime, as I said, folks, follow Buzz on Twitter at Buzz. And uh, thanks again, Buzz. It's been great chatting with you today. Yeah, thank you. This has been Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkett and Buzz Anderson. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review or rating in the iTunes podcast directory. You can find links and other show notes at the podcast homepage, bitsplitting.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening.